We are in probably our last week of heaven. Um, Next week, we're going to begin to transition to some Christmas preaching, but we'll have a little bit of heaven woven into it. And um, we have been talking, you know, using Randy Alcorn's materials, and I'll be doing that again today. And we've been talking about how heaven is a compass and how it gives us guidance, how it gives us place. You know, it, it helps to point us. It keeps us balanced, you know, in this life. And today we hope we continue to do that. But before we go on, I want to pray, and um, then we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. Father, this morning I come and I just uh, pause before you and seek your spirit and your indwelling and just like for your guidance. We long to hear from you today, and I long to have you use these words and these notes on paper in a way that honors you and draws us to yourself. We look to you in this moment. Help us to set aside all the things that would distract us. The busyness of the season, the shopping list, the to-do list, all those things that are just, you know, vying for our attention that would eat away any time to meditate, to pause, to be with you. Help us to be still before you right now. To listen to you and what you have to say to us. Help me to set aside all things that would be, um, not be of you, that would draw attention to myself or to our church. Help us to only be about you in this moment. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to pick up on a couple of comments or a couple of questions that we haven't addressed with our heaven study. One of the questions that someone asked me one Sunday in that center aisle right there is this right here. Will we, I mean, if I am there, now I would speak for myself right now, if I am there, then there's the likelihood that I'm going to do things wrong. There's the likelihood that I would sin if I were there. So what's going to keep me from sinning? Will we be able to sin in heaven? Now, really, at the heart of that question, more about being able to sin, at the heart of that question really is, will we have free will? Will we have free choice in heaven? Because how is it that I will be there and sin won't be there? Because I've never known me apart from sin. And some of y'all should have said amen. I gave you a chance. My wife's downstairs. (laughs) How is it that that would be possible that I will be in heaven, that you will be in heaven, and sin won't be there? Because in our minds, we have that choice to sin or not to sin. How does that get worked out? Today, I want to just look at some of the materials, some of the way that Alcorn has developed his argument. Let's look at it and see where we fall down on that, where we come out in that. And then we're going to close with an additional thought and, and kind of connected to all this. But there's a variety of verses we can look at today that come to a conclusion to help us to bring us to a place in that. One of them is in Revelation 21. Right here, this particular verse, we refer to Revelation 21 a lot in this study, but this particular verse says, And he will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And then catch this last phrase. The things, the first things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. The first things have passed away. 
So in other words, he's saying the old order of things have passed away. Well, what was, what was that old order? Talk to me a little bit. Tell me what are a couple of things you can think of that are just a part of the old order, the things of the past, what are that first things. What are some of the things in there? Talk to me, you guys. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Say a word. Sin, say sin. That's right, sin. Amen. What else? What else is there in the verse even? You know, what else would we say are things that are not going to be there? You know, death, pain, crying, yes, um, uh, mourning, um, sadness, all of those things that we experience in this life. And in this life, we have a hard time thinking that we would never be a part of it. In this life, we're thinking about what would it be like to be apart from that. And the next life, he says, all of that stuff will pass away. All of that stuff was caused by sin. In the garden, when man rebelled, he broke the system, and the system there introduced sin into it. And that is where it all comes from. Remember also that in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Well, most of the time when we think about that, we think about that imperishable part of it. We think about that in the context of of corruption. That's another word that perhaps your Bible says in there. So in other words, whatever is in the new earth, whatever is in heaven, in that case, this passage is telling us, is speaking to us and says, whatever is there, whatever will be like, it can't perish. We won't perish. Rust, mold, corruption, whatever it is, it won't happen there. Because it says we are going into the imperishable and we will be changed. So corruption won't happen in heaven. Christ died for our sin. He, he only needed to die one time to deal with sin. Only one time, only one death. And in his resurrection, he overcame death. He overcame the penalty. He paid the penalty for death. He paid the penalty for sin in his death, past, present, and future. So Paul instructs us, he says that because of that, you have new life. Take off that old life and put on this new life. And this new life is, in its essence, is his righteousness, is the righteousness of Christ. So set aside one thing, take on this other. And to realize that Christ's righteousness is now our righteousness, Hebrews 10 says, by a single offering, he himself was perfected for all time so that for those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when we come into this new place, we won't be perishable. We won't bring our sin with us. We are are perfected for all time. We will be sinless. Revelation 21 goes on further and it says that in this new heaven, this new earth, there'll be no impurities for no one for nor, I'm sorry, no one with any, anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life would be admitted. So we are made pure in Christ. Nothing impure will enter. So how is it that we're going to get in, but our sinfulness won't? It sounds almost like there's a filter that we'll pass through And we'll come through, but our sinfulness won't. 
and that's really the case, that's really quite honestly what it is, is that we are filtered, we are washed by his blood. And now we experience that a little bit. Now we know about that. Now we're struggling to figure out what that means. We're trying to live in that truth. But in that moment, when we will be changed, in that moment, that's when it happens where it's no longer a theoretical thing. It's no longer something we're trying to figure out. It's not a later on thing. It's a real thing in that moment. Right now, when we talk about, think about his righteousness being our own, we, we really think of it as a later and now and later thing. We think of it as something that we're learning how to live in and later on we'll live in completely. But when we are changed, that's what's one of the things that's going to change about us is that we will be fully clothed in his righteousness. And if we're in his righteousness, then, and he can't sin, then we can't sin either. When we read Revelation 20, like 10, or Revelation 20, um, uh, verse 8, 21, 8, we read there that Satan and all the evildoers are thrown in the lake of fire and further, and further support that no evil, no sin will be in this new earth and this new place. But none of that stuff really answers the question of free will. It says that it, we can't sin there, but the question still remains is, why can't I sin there? Alcorn addresses this question. He draws our attention to Romans 5, where it says, Therefore, as though the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the, dis- the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. His comment is that suggesting that we can have Christ's righteousness in the new earth and sin is to, and to, and sin is to suggest that Christ could sin. In other words, we'll have his righteousness, he can't sin, so if we have his righteousness, we can't sin. He would say that good, that God completely delivered us from sin, including our vulnerability to it. And he goes on and he, he concludes, he says this, that the, ability, the inability to sin doesn't inherently violate free will. The inability to sin doesn't inherently violate free will. My inability to be God, to be an angel, to be a rabbit, or to be a flower is not a violation of my free will. It's simply the reality of my nature. The new nature, this righteousness that Christ has put upon us, this new nature will be ours in heaven. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's a nature that cannot sin. Any more than a diamond cannot be soft or blue can't be red. God can't sin, yet not being as great. God cannot sin, yet not being as greater free choice does not have God. I'm sorry. God cannot sin. So in that... Being like that, that does not negate. Having his nature does not mean that we no longer... I messed up this point completely. I'm walking away from my notes. I'll just do better. All right? In other words, having his nature does not mean that we don't have free will. It means his nature makes it so that we don't sin any longer. So we've stepped through that filter, and all of a sudden that filter washes away that desire to sin. It washes away that vulnerability to sin. It doesn't mean we don't have free choice. It means that coming into heaven, it changes our nature. Because as humans, we were given free choice from the very beginning, were we not? In the garden, he says, this is it. Don't do this. You have a choice. 
It doesn't say that when he takes us into heaven, when he, when he takes us and he, and he glorifies us, when he completes the sanctification process, he doesn't say that I'm going to take away your free will. He says, I'm changing your nature. I'm changing who you are on the inside. I'm completing what I started when you trusted Christ as your Savior. And so the answer, the question is, can I sin in heaven? The answer is no. Do I, is it because I lost my free will? No, it's because your nature has been totally changed into something we can hardly even imagine what it would be like. Again, when we talk about having a new nature, this is very much that whole thing about having the peephole and being able to see out the hole, to see a little bit of what's there, but not being able to see all of it. To be able to see we have a new nature and to be able to try and describe it, we would only be describing a little bit of it. But what we don't understand about it is enough to be excited about. It's enough to want it more. In the sense that it's saying, in this new nature, we won't be vulnerable to sin anymore. We won't be vulnerable to, to corruption, to brokenness, to all the stuff that sin let loose on us in this life. In that new nature, new nature it won't have any pull, any leverage on us at all in the next life. And it's not because we can't change it. It's because God is perfecting us and taking his perfection and laying it and making it part of our nature in the next life. So, keep in mind that being human has not always been equated with being sinful. That's another reason why I think it's hard for us to imagine us being a part of something and not bringing our sin into it. But when we think back to the garden, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve were not sinful. And in the very beginning, they were apart from sin. They had not known it. They had not rebelled. They had not entered sin into, our, into the culture. We, we as humans, or those humans anyway, were sinless. But their rebellion brought sin and corruption and all that that brings with it to bear on the human race. Romans 5.19, there, where, yep, there we're still there. You know, it says that, that as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, so through one man's sin, all of us became sinners, he says. Through one man's obedience, Christ, it says we'll all be made righteous. Have you ever noticed <clears throat> that we read a lot into things that aren't there? You know, you, it happens a lot and as we communicate with each other. You know, I use one word, you take that word and you attach your meaning to it, and then you have a whole new conclusion based on your meaning, based on your context, based on your experience, whatever the case may be. We read a verse, and we think that that verse says something when it doesn't really say that always. Because we have something in mind already that has led us to a conclusion that often is not there. One of those types of assumption has to do with what it means to, to be a fully righteous human. For instance, like one of the things that I think that I've, I've thought about is that my definition, my thought of what perfection looks like. What does it look like 
to say that we will be perfect or that heaven will be perfect. So just answer me that. What do you think we t- when, when you hear that, what do you think, what conclusion do you come to when you hear that in heaven everything will be perfect? Give me one thing. Talk to me, someone in this section. One, sinless, okay, so you'll be free from sin, all right? Betty Jo? No death and disease. All those things mean perfect to you, right? Okay, great. Harmony between people, right? Thank you, Bruce. Anyone else here? All right. Bruce? Content. Yeah, okay, good. Good. Anyone else? No needs. Right, needs will be met, right? Anything over here? Freedom? Is that what you said? Yeah, freedom. All right, good, good. And so all of those things, we could probably find a verse to connect us to some of them, maybe all of them. But what does it mean to be perfectly human? Think about that. Because when we talk about going into heaven, most of what you said is probably true. Maybe all of what you just said is true. But we're still human. I think a lot of the confusion about what happens in heaven and what we'll be like in heaven comes because in so many people's minds, we are almost godlike in heaven. We are almost like there's some state of divinity about us in heaven. While I don't think that we can really pull that from Scripture and find that to be true, we are definitely going to be different. We are definitely, by, just by being exposed to his glory, there are going to be differences about us. Having an understanding of what happens to a resurrected body and what that's going to be like, we've already talked about what we do know and don't know about that. But to be perfectly human, it will mean that the corruption of sin, it won't plague us. It won't plague our attitudes, our thoughts, and our actions. So in other words, lust and jealousy and deceit and pride, all of those things, none of those things will be our experience there as a perfect human. It will mean that the corruption of our sin won't plague our bodies. So it didn't, it's not going to affect my heart, nor is it going to affect my body. So cancer, MS, autism, heart disease, whatever else is in our bodies right now, it won't be a problem then. And all of that I just described is human. But perfect humans are not divine. And being perfect in the new earth does not make us God. It doesn't make us angels. It restores what was originally created in the garden. Yet, because we are there in resurrected bodies, it's still not the same as in the garden. So you see, in actuality, being free from sin is, is being fully human. Being free from sin is being perfect human. The biggest differences in what God started in the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, when he created man, he says, this is good. And then they move into Genesis 3 where man rebels and where man sins, and all of a sudden he breaks it. What happens in Genesis 3 is this. We know about DNA. We know, you know, we've been learning about it a lot and how the secrets of our bodies are there 
and how we, by studying our DNA, you can find a proclivity to a disorder or a disease. You can find out as much about us and how we're made and what's wrong with us by going back to the gene pool. But in a sense, the spiritual gene pool, that in Genesis 3, when man rebelled and when he broke the system by his rebellion, he entered sin into it, and that gene pool all of a sudden was polluted. And none of us, no one who has ever been born since that time has ever been able to avoid the pollution of that sin. It is built into our DNA. Spiritual DNA. Matter of fact, it's even built into our physical DNA. Because that's why we have the diseases and the disorders and the brokenness in our bodies that we have. Because sin was introduced into our DNA. Spiritually and physically. So as we are in our current state, it's not as our ancestors were. It's not as Adam and Eve was. We are not as fully human as they were. Instead, we're a corrupted copy of Adam and Eve in their origin. Um. I've been listening uh, uh, to The Chosen by uh, Chaim, Chaim Potok and, uh, on an audio book, you know. And it's kind of, I really like it. Did I do it right? Chaim. Thank you very much. My, our, my Jewish authority back there gave me the right pronunciation. Um, and I, you get in the car and you have this, and the kids are in the car with you and they say, Dad, I'm going, don't talk. I'm listening to my book. It just consumes it. And I'm listening to this disc, and last night in disc seven, it began to skip. And I'm thinking, this can't be. This disc isn't working right. It's corrupted. It's not doing what it's intended to do. And it's not fulfilling its purpose. It's unsatisfying. It's unfulfilling. There's a lot of things wrong all of a sudden in my life because of this disc. Because it's corrupted. And that's what we are. The original purpose that we were put on planet Earth for when Adam and Eve were created, they, in sin they corrupted it. And all of a sudden what they were intended to do, the message they were intended to give, which is glory to God and everything, was broken. And no longer did they give glory to God, they gave angst to all of mankind. In the new earth, that corruption, that polluted DNA, so to speak, all that stuff will be removed, and for the first time since created mankind stepped into sin, they will, for the first time since Adam and Eve, they will be fully human. They will be perfect human. Perfect human. Not because they, they can do all the things God can do. Not because they can walk through walls or, I mean, anything. That God, not because they have any semblance of God, but because all of a sudden sin is removed. And in that, mankind is perfected. That's the perfection we can anticipate having in heaven. For the first time, right now only two people have ever experienced that, Adam and Eve. And we'll, we'll know what that's like when we get to heaven. Chasing the question of perfection in heaven a little bit further, how many times 
have you filled in the blank on this? When I get to heaven, I want to know. And you fill in that blank. I want to know why it rained on my sixth birthday. I want to know, and it can be as, as silly as stuff as that because it really messed us up on our sixth birthday, to all the way like, why did you take him now? Why doesn't my body work anymore? All kinds of questions we think we're going to ask. All kinds of questions we said, when I get to heaven, this is all I want to know. This is all I want to be able to ask. And it speaks of when, of, of, that when we get to heaven, of what we will know, and where we'll know everything, where we have the opportunity to know everything, where we have the opportunity to ask those kind of questions. And really, the real question is this, is when I get to heaven, will those questions still matter? They matter to us right now because that's who we are. All of that stuff matters to us. What happened to me on my sixth birthday, it still matters to me. And what happened to your loved one or to your body, it still matters to you in this life. The fact of the matter is that only God is, uh, is omniscient. Uh, in other words, only He knows everything. So we won't be God-like. We won't be like God in that regard. Paul comments about this a little bit in, in Romans, I mean, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians. In this passage that you'll probably recognize it as being the very end of the love chapter. And Paul says something here that's interesting in the context of perfect. Verse 9, he says, For we know in part, we know in part, we don't understand everything, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason as a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. And now, verse 12, he says this, We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been known, or fully known. He speaks of a mirror there. <clears throat> a matter of fact, let me just, one more. He speaks of a mirror there. And, and perhaps when you read that, you think of it as I do, in the sense that... that um, you, that in a mirror, we think of ourselves as seeing ourselves as we are. But that's not really the case. Matter of fact, let me, even, let me even show you what the Amplified Version says with this passage. Keep in mind that a mirror was not a mirror like we have today, that a mirror that they would use was a polished metal. It might have been silver, it might have been bronze. And so you think about that, and you look at a reflection in a polished metal, you don't get the right colors, this discoloration. And so, and all of us fat people look skinny, and all of you skinny people look fat, which I think is really funny. Um, and, and so, and so it, everything was not the way it really was. It, dis, it, dis, it distorted colors, shapes. In the mirror they're talking about. And so here you look at what the Amplified Version says about this, who, and it says, for now we are looking in a mirror that gives only a dim, blurred reflection of reality, as in a riddle or enigma. But then when perfection comes, we will see in reality and face to face. 
Now I know in part, I know imperfectly now, but then I shall know and understand fully and clearly, even in the same manner as I've been fully and clearly known and understood by God. I love the way that that verse unpacks the passage for us. Perhaps you, like myself, have read that verse and you've come away with it thinking that we'll know everything in heaven. But I really don't think that that's where Paul is going with the passage. While we, while we talk about being perfectly human, we won't be all-knowing. As Alcorn says, we won't know everything. I mean, not knowing everything is not a flaw. I think he's speaking about seeing a reality that we can only see now by faith. When we talk about seeing it perfectly, when we talk about seeing it for what it is, consider these two passages here. 1 John 3, 2, right there, where he says, We know that when we shall appear, then when he shall appear, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we, Now we walk by faith, by faith, not by sight. So we walk by, not because what we see, but by faith is what we walk by. So, so much of our spiritual life is lived by faith right now. That won't be the case one day. One day it'll be face to face. When I see him face to face, I'll understand so much of what I've struggled with in this life, so much of what I, has caused a haze in my mind and my heart. So much of what I try to understand about God and about loving Him and about how He loves me, so much of what it means to be completely forgiven, that grace is pervasive in my whole life, that's what He intends, but understanding that, and I can understand that. Try to understand what it means that Jesus died for me and I'll never have to pay for my wrongdoing, that someone else has already paid it for me. Understanding that. Resolving all of my fears, my worries, and my frailties. I'll be able to focus. I'll, I, might, I won't worry about the approval of others. I'll, I'll, my, I'll escape the damage done by my father, the pain of losing a mother at a young age. So much of what I've struggled with in this life will be resolved in the next life, not because I get to ask questions about it, but because I'll see him face to face. The approval of others won't matter in the light of being face-to-face with him. I won't doubt any longer. Anything that ever happened with my, my father will be resolved with, them, with my heavenly father. The wounds and the unhealing wounds of losing a loved one will be healed. And not because I get to ask questions and I understand why, but because I will see him. The questions and the uncertainty and the doubts in my mind. The MS, the cancer, the depression, the the bipolar. Whatever it is that is on your list that you think you'd want to ask about. Whatever it is that is there that that makes you wonder. I just firmly believe that when I'm face to face with him, they won't make me wonder any longer. And not because I'll have answers in word, but because my answer will be in him. You see, what we have in heaven, that, that trust, that, down depo- that, that, that the deposit that we have, 
what we should be anxious to grasp, you know, the, the, the stuff that's there now that we think about. The stuff that we want as our own now, much of it we'd like to have restored or fixed, that stuff won't be the stuff that's foremost in our mind then. When I think about heaven so often, I, and I say this honestly, when I think about heaven, I think about Jacob, my 22-year-old nephew that died several years from brain cancer. I think about my mother who died when I was a young man. I think about those people as being people there that I want to be with. And I honestly think that when I arrive, I won't be thinking about them so much because I'll see him face to face. And in that moment, the glory, the fullness of his grace, as the old song says, in that moment, all of that stuff that I've wondered about, all that stuff that consumes my mind and my energy, my heart, when I am face to face with him in that moment, I believe all that will fade away. I believe all of that will no longer be important. As the passage says, that the suffering of this life will pale compared to the glory of the next. And he is the definition of glory in the next. In this life, we think, we, that we, we think about what we want so much in the next, but I think it will be clear when we are face to face with him that he is all we really need. He completes us. He fulfills us. Alcorn says that, that every heavenly pleasure will, will derive from and be secondary to him. It's not what we know in heaven. It's who we know that will satisfy us. It's not the answers we'll get. They won't be important anymore. It's who we'll be with that will consume our hearts, our minds, and totally, completely, for the first time in our life, we will be satisfied, not because of what we know, but because of who we're with. That is what's laid up for us in heaven. That is the perfect. That is the, the deposit we have waiting for us. That's what grounds us in this life and yet keeps us aloof in this life. Him. Him. Knowing Him. Experiencing Him face to face for the first time. 